I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 10 in our series for 2021, and today's date is Friday, April the 9th. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. First, I'll be talking to Adam Rang, President and COO of CapShift, a U.S. impact investing firm that empowers philanthropic and financial institutions, along with their clients, to mobilise capital for social and environmental change. And I'll be talking to RMIT economist Jonathan Boimel about Australia's booming housing market. But now, let's talk to Adam Rain. Well, Adam, tell us about uh, impact investing. Well, impact investing, uh, first, thanks for having me, Leon. It's a pleasure to be here. Impact investing is a field that has been growing over the past 10 or 20 years. And it's really based on the principle that investors can both generate financial returns and achieve broader social or environmental goals at the same time through their investments. Been of growing interest both here in the U.S. where I am and globally, and uh, it's, it's only growing in popularity. So social justice investing and ESG are important for investors now. Yeah, and I think, you know, roughly the, the market has split into two camps, I'd say. One is the broader set of public market investors investing in the largest companies in the world saying, hey, uh, it's important to us not to just look at their financial forecast, but to look at 
ESG, environmental, social, and governance principles more deeply, both because those factors can be long-term risk for the company or just because it's the right thing to do. There's a separate group of investors that are more focused on private markets, you know, investing in venture capital and private equity in microfinance and small business lending saying, you know, it's really investing in small businesses or in growing businesses that you can really change the world. And this is very much focused on specific sectors like renewable energy or affordable healthcare or new education technology. Uh, and that's also growing in popularity, but is, you know, outside of the world of kind of the broader public markets. And the broader public markets, would, would that would apply to uh, sectors like, say, banks? Yeah, the, the ESG market factors cover all public companies. So you can look at software companies, industrial companies, because the, the factors that are looked at are, are there everywhere. It's, you know, how do we treat our workers? How do we treat our suppliers? What's the you know, environmental footprint of our operations? Do our products and services do good or harm? And so there's been a lot of standardization, you know, one big set around environment and carbon and climate, and then another set more around kind of workers and suppliers and, and products. Uh, but that data is just growing and there's a whole ecosystem of, of rating agencies and analysts trying to look at, at the largest corporations in the world. What, what would be driving a lot of this? I mean, besides uh, climate change? Yeah, I think there's, I think, two intersecting factors. One is financial and one is more around purpose. The financial factors are that, you know, most of the research has said that, you know, funds and analysts that look at non-financial factors can do better at predicting which companies are going to generate long-term returns. And so you can think about crises that occur in companies like Volkswagen and emissions scandals or Facebook and privacy scandals, so much of long-term returns is driven by factors that are oftentimes not simply in, in these basic forecasts. And so that's kind of the, the risk and financial analysis. And the other is more, has been, I think, rallied around folks like Larry Fink of BlackRock, whose letter at the beginning of this year kind of sent shockwaves to the markets. And that's saying, look, the, the purpose of business has to look at solving the big problems of the world. And if, if business can't play a role in tackling coronavirus, if we can't play a role in tackling climate change, all economies hurt, all business profits hurt. And so we as business and as investors need to be a force for good and pushing businesses to have better practices because it's how we build kind of a richer economy and, and, and richer set of communities. This would also apply to governance, wouldn't it? Because you would have, uh, uh, this would give rise to activist investors forcing companies to adopt certain policies. Yeah, and so I think for, for the past few decades, you've mainly seen this, this done by more of the socially responsible investing mutual funds that were at the forefront of shareholder activism pushing companies to report on their greenhouse gas emissions, pushing companies to have sustainable palm oil use, you know, to take apparel companies out of sweatshops, things of this nature. Now you've started to actually see hedge funds moving into this market. And the first couple of very public hedge funds saying, we are going to buy large stakes in companies with bad practices, and we're gonna change out the board and we're gonna position these kind of dinosaur companies for a future that's based not just on shareholder capital, capitalism, but on stakeholder capitalism. 
companies that realize that create long-term economic value, we need to think about, you know, be doing, treating our workers well, treating our communities well, having products and services that don't have kind of negative externalities that others other absorb. And so these, uh, this trend is, is kind of, it's exciting to see it going, you know, into some of these more activist firms. Same time, though, this can also create tensions in the market, couldn't it? I mean, you'd have a, a fair bit of resistance, say, for, for example, from banks, mining companies would be another example. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's, it's an interesting time to see how legacy companies that have, what you could say, large footprints that may have kind of negative impacts, how they're responding to this movement. Um, just if you take the oil and gas sector, you've seen some companies like BP out on the forefront saying, no, we're going to make commitments to lowering our footprint and we're going to adopt cleaner technologies. And then you see have other firms saying, you know, no, we're going to try to, um, you know, keep keep as long as we can, you know, our, our cash flow practices. And we think this is all a trend. And in the end, profits win. And, you know, it's kind of shaking out in the market, as we see. It would particularly apply to, say, resources companies, miners, wouldn't it? There would be a fair bit of tension there. Yeah. I mean, in some sense, those companies, you know, are, are a little bit stuck, right? You know, if you have most of your assets aren't things that are polluting, then it, it takes a large effort to change. And usually the debate is what's on, what is the right pace of change? Should it be gradual or should, we, should it be more disruptive? I think at the same time, you know, there's a lot of excitement, not just on kind of the old, more polluting companies, if you want to generalize, but just on the, the broader set of, of middle market, you know, companies out there and saying, what role do stronger ESG practices play in these businesses? Do they pay attention to social justice and their hiring practices and benefits policies? You know, how much transparency do they have in their suppliers and whether there's human rights abuses there? And is this something that companies are pay active attention to or, or largely ignore? And, you know, the, the firm CapShift where, that I help lead, you know, we're working with those investors at the forefront of this movement of saying this is important to us. And you can imagine that the more investors who are, are saying this is okay, then it's easier for companies to take those steps. And I would imagine, though, too, that, I mean, climate change has been a driving force, but I, I, I would imagine something like coronavirus, which has affected the entire world, would have been a major factor in this as well. It has been, and, and I think that's why ESG is, is very broad. You know, it covers everything from environmental practices to worker practices. And, you know, I think one big one was that, that coronavirus brought up was around supply chains. So, you know, a year ago, you saw a lot of companies shutting down and a lot of companies that didn't have a lot of transparencies into the health practices of their suppliers. And so companies that were more proactive on protecting workers may be able to stay open. Companies where workers were getting sick had to shut down. Uh, and you saw this, this shake out as, as, as an example of, you know, the practices on how you care for your workers, you know, care a lot more when there's in the middle of a pandemic. So what are the big trends you see happening in, in this market? Yeah, and, and as a caveat, you know, our, our firm CapShift works out here primarily in the United States. And we've particularly seen a focus on the first trend around charitable asset owners. So folks who have set aside money in a private foundation 
or a vehicle such as a donor advised fund, traditionally those that capital just kind of sat in traditional funds and people very much focused on grant making. But we see a large trend of um, charitable asset owners saying, hey, you know, we have 20 times more investments than we do grant dollars. Shouldn't we be paying attention to how these investments can achieve the mission that, that our organization or our family cares about? And so that's been a big movement and a big wave. And, you know, a number that, that shocks me is that just in the U.S. alone, there's over $1 trillion of charitable assets sitting in investment vehicles. The second trend that we've seen, again, you know, driven by events here in the U.S. has been a greater focus on uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and racial justice as a focus of investors and a focus of companies. This has particularly been prevalent over the past year. And uh, this, you see a lot of workers asking around, what are the practices of management teams? What are the practices of workers? And how can we uh, foster investments that support disadvantaged communities or communities of colors instead of being more attractive? And then the final trend, as you noted, that I'd highlight, you know, obviously uh, this is going to be a year where climate is top of mind, particularly with a a change in U.S. administration that's going to be driving ahead in the global agenda. But one area that that historically had not been looked at as much is, is climate resiliency and how prepared are businesses to volatile weather, changing weather patterns, changing migration patterns, droughts, floods. Uh, And we started to see the first funds pop up that really have adaptation and resiliency as a thesis, you know, well beyond kind of the traditional work around renewable energy, forestation and agriculture. Well, that's all fascinating, Adam. Look, thank you very much for your time. No, thank you. And now let's talk to RMIT economist, Jonathan Boyman. Jonathan Boimel, house prices have been racing ahead. Cutting interest rates, according to the RBA, has uh, actually put a rocket under house prices. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, since the the trough in in September, uh, dwelling values across uh, Australia's five largest capital cities have climbed by about about 6%. So that puts house prices um, about 3 to 4% above uh, the pre-COVID-19 levels. Um, and clearance rates are, are running hot. So, you know, last weekend, Sydney's clearance rate was over 90%. Melbourne's clearance rate was uh, was 80%. Um, and of course, you know, this gives rise to concern that there'll be uh, continued growth in uh, in housing in housing prices. And as you and as you suggested, you know, one of the major drivers is uh, is a record low um, interest rate. Certainly, record low three year. Uh, home loan rates. The RBA's yield curve control policy has kept three interest rates fixed at 0.1%. The RBA also has uh, that uh, three-year term uh, funding facility, which allows banks to to borrow at a cost of only 0.1% annually. The yield control policy will will remain, that, that, that term funding facility um, will expire in a couple of months' time, but definitely this this sets a f- uh, foundation for for continued uh, house uh, house price growth. And it's also uh, raising issues about household debt. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know something that's that's noticeable is that what's driving um, this growth is the owner occupier market, and that of course gives rise to to real concerns about about debt. 
and the implications that they that may have in case of of a downturn and the impact of a of a wealth effect on consumer consumer spending. So the uh, the RBA is is conscious of this growth, and I would expect that they'll take some steps to to hose down the the housing market in the in the months ahead. But surely uh, they, they seem to have left that up to APRA. Yeah, absolutely. Look, there are a number of things a number of things that 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 can be done. You know, putting a limit on the percentage of high loan to to value loans, getting some mandated percentage of lower loan to value loans. Um, putting higher interest rate buffers imposed on, on borrowers, greater scrutiny on income and expenditure, and and so on. But the last time APRA did this, when they put these lending restrictions on banks, looking back to 2014-15, and then 16-17, this was very much in response to the rising prices that were driven by uh, by investors. In this case, the the, the upward cycle is. Uh, being driven by owner occupiers, because we're actually seeing that the uh, the rental market is is softening. Um, so there are different different considerations here, different considerations here. But you would expect that uh, there will be some lending restrictions uh, reimposed, let's say by the by the end of the the end of the year. I mean, you know that last year and the year before, APRA removed the requirements. Um, that lenders use a minimum interest rate of 7% to assess the borrower's capacity to repay. Also, uh, last year, the RBA signaled it would loosen its, its credit lines to commercial banks, a reduction in the three-year funding facility rate at the end of last year. Um, so again, as I, as I said before, they can borrow up to $180 billion at, at um, 0.1%. So we've got a very you know loose monetary environment, um, and that is certainly supported record low um, three-year uh, home loan rates um, and that has a has an impact on the uh, the owner occupier market and I certainly see I mean there, there, there are measures overseas like New Zealand's implemented restrictions on owner occupier loans with less than 20 percent deposit and investor loans with less than 40 percent uh, they've moved on that and uh, the UK has implemented restrictions that limit the amount of loans lenders can make where proposed debt to income ratio exceeds 4.5 times. I mean, so we're already seeing that happening overseas. So it's, this is a global trend now because of low interest rates. Absolutely. And we, we, we would expect um, to see some of these policy levers being being implemented uh, uh, in Australia probably by the probably by the end of the year because the fact is that we're unlikely to see an increase in, in official interest rates. I mean, the, the jobless rate is still around 6%. That's at you know, global financial crisis levels. So it's very unlikely um, that we're going to be approaching um, full employment anytime soon. Um, we're not going to get wages growth. We're not going to get inflationary pressure. So there's not going to be much of a case to increase interest rates. JobKeeper expiring, that's going to put a, a further dampener on, on employment. Um, so yeah, low interest rates are, are here to stay. And we're going to have to be looking for for other policy levers to to cool down the uh, the housing market. And certainly, the RBA has indicated there won't be any interest rate rise for at least three years. Absolutely, absolutely. So the RBA has made a commitment to to keep rates 
um, now down at 0.1% until 2024. So we are going to have to be looking for some some other some other policy some other policy levers. I mean, we've also got you know the gradual return of net migration going forward um, over the next year. Also, um, initially that'll be concentrated um, in, in skilled workers and, and students. That will provide further support to prices. So I think as we see the gradual return of net migration, I think that'll be the, the timing for um, some, some, some stricter prudential controls on, on lending by APRA. And uh, do you see any issue with supply of assets in terms of the actual number of buildings coming on the market? Look, not not at the not at the moment. I know that you know there there have been concerns about you know the supply supply of units. So what's interesting is that that rentals are in, incredibly soft at the at the moment um, because of a fall because of a fall in demand. I think you know a slight a slight increase in demand will restore yields, but I don't think there's there's a significant concern about the the supply side at the moment. Well, uh, from what I hear, one of the issues with demand is that uh, a lot of people can't get tenants because uh, students aren't coming in from overseas anymore. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. So if we see, you know, at the end of this year, the start of next year, um, that increase in net migration coming from coming from students. Um, then we should see a, a, a pickup on the on the demand side, particularly in the in the rental market, and then having some skilled workers coming in around that time as well. Again, should put should uh, put a bit of a bit of a floor under under house prices, and so it's likely that we'll see sustained sustained increases over the over the next couple of years. When no, do no, you no, see no. that happening? Look, I'd expect that in terms of net migration, we will probably see see that at, at the end of the end of the year, um, and the start of next year, and again that will lead, um, will, will provide a boost um, to the housing market. But again, you know you've got this countervailing countervailing influence of of APRA, um, and we're just not sure um, what it what it might do. You know, it's removed all all, all the requirements uh, that lenders used to um, have to have to apply. When it came to an assessor, a borrower's capacity, and and so on to repay, if it starts reimposing that, well, we know the impact that it had, you know, several years ago, um, 2014, 15, and 16, 17. We know it had an impact on the market um, at that stage um, when macroprudential lending restrictions were actually imposed. Um, if they do that again, we'd also expect to see a a, a, a similar similar uh, adverse impact on housing prices. Right. Okay. Okay. So, so we'll, we'll all be watching out what happens with APRA. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the, that's the, the big unknown at the moment, but you would expect um, with all these, uh, these underlying um, factors um, leading to, uh, leading to uh, expectations of further house price growth, that they would step in towards the, towards the end of the year. And how do you see house price growth uh, trending for the rest of the year? Uh, well, that's a very good question. I mean, you know, there are there are some commentators have suggested that uh, we'll see an increase by twelve percent. Some commentators um, have said that we'll see an increase um, of about twenty percent. I would expect that, barring the imposition of new lending restrictions, I'd say that we'd see um, housing price growth um, um, falling somewhere between the the ten and twenty percent uh, mark. But again. 
that's uh, without the, the countervailing influence of uh, APRA and its uh, lending restrictions. And that would be 10 and 20% right around Australia? Yes, we know. What, what's really interesting is that there's been a, a real different performance um, in some of the regional markets compared yeah. to uh, to compared to the, uh, the the major cities and the and the urban markets. But I think you know, in all likelihood, that's going to that'll probably wash out over the next couple of months, and we will see an overall an overall uh, increase um, across most most markets in Australia by that by that order of magnitude. Well, Jonathan Boymel, that's uh, all fascinating, and thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Liam. So, what's happening in the news? Well, the world's top economic officials focused at a virtual meeting this week on the prospect of new COVID-19 variants and shutdowns undermining the global rebound, while weighing measures to prevent lasting damage to the poorest and most vulnerable populations. The international economy is recovering faster than many economists projected just weeks ago, powered by growth in the US and China, and by the accelerating pace of vaccinations in many rich countries. Yet a new wave of lockdowns from Europe to Canada is threatening that growth, as many low- and middle-income nations with limited resources lag behind. The annual spring meeting of the IMF and the World Bank held virtually between April the 5th and April the 11th brought together policymakers from the Group of 20 Nations and others. The pandemic response included vaccine distribution and aid to struggling nations dominated the conversations this year. Officials also discussed ways to rebuild the global economy with a particular focus on strengthening the resilience against climate change. And Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen outlined the case for a harmonised corporate tax rate across the world's major economies, part of an effort to restore global leadership and credibility with US allies following the unilateralist approach of the Trump era. In a first major speech on the international economic policy, Yellen marked an American return to the global stage. This means tech giants like Facebook and Google will find it even harder to book their profits in low tax havens now that the Biden administration is supporting a global minimum tax. Yellen singled out China, saying that the US needs a strong presence in global markets to level the playing field. The Biden administration tax proposal also marks a US return to years-long talks led by the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development with about 140 countries to develop a global agreement on minimum levies. But participants haven't yet reached a deal, and while most involved support the idea of a global minimum tax, the negotiations also include a potential accord on digital taxation that has been blocked by long-standing disagreements over how to approach the issue. The new multilateral approach begins with the US taking a leading role in working globally to find an appropriate minimum corporate tax. One of the revenue-raising proposals in President Joe Biden's $2.5 trillion package on infrastructure and other spending released last week. Yellen wants to halt what she described as an international race to the bottom by countries competing to lure corporations with lower taxes. An Australian job advertisement surged to the highest in 12 years in March, a promising sign the labour market's blistering recovery can withstand the removal of some of the government's emergency support programs. Tuesday's figures from the Australian, New Zealand and Banking Group showed total job ads grew 7.4% in March from February, when they jumped an upwardly 8.8%. And the Reserve Bank has kept the official cash rate on hold at 0.1% at its April meeting on Tuesday, the fifth meeting where the rate has been cut to or held at the record low. The RBA moved to the current rate in November, with a 15 basis point cut to help boost the nation's economic recovery from the coronavirus pandemic and support job creation. And the Reserve Bank, its operations and its key policy objective of holding inflation between 2 and 3% would be the focus of a review under a Labor government 
amid warnings the institution is being left behind by overseas central banks. Labor argues the RBA needs to acknowledge its contribution towards low wages, underemployment and weak investments. Critics often call for reviews of particular policies, but demanding a review of a cornerstone of economic policies such as the Reserve Bank is highly unusual. But in a sign of how much economic policy is in flux in the wake of both the global financial crisis and the coronavirus recession, the step by Labor to promise its own review of the bank is one that has some support within the government and the broader economic community. Shadow Treasurer Jim Chalmers says the bank should acknowledge its contribution towards a persistent weakness in the economy between the end of the global financial crisis and the coronavirus recession. A review would also look at how monetary and fiscal policy were working together. And the Australian economy is pole vaulting back from doldrums of coronavirus, with the International Monetary Fund forecasting a 4.5% growth this year. But the financial institution, headquartered in Washington, D.C., projects growth will slow to 2.8% in 2022. The IMF also expects unemployment will drop to 6% this year, 5.5% in 2022. The economy contracted by 2.4% in 2020 as the border slammed shut and strict coronavirus restrictions were enforced. And the tech sector's engagement with the federal government may nosedive thanks to former Attorney General Christian Porter's appointment to the portfolio, with industry leaders saying they believe he, he would be unwelcome by some at events, particularly women, and organisations would have to bargain with themselves about accepting government funding. Mr Porter was moved to the industry, science and technology portfolio as part of a cabinet reshuffle. Peter Dutton has picked up the defence ministry and Karen Andrews has moved from the technology portfolio to home affairs. Well, Mr Porter has been accused of raping a young woman 33 years ago when they were teenagers, which he denies. Beyond the allegations surrounding Mr Porter, which are now the subject of a defamation action against the ABC, the industry has also been critical of his lack of experience in the sector, saying it demonstrates the low priority the Coalition puts on industry, science and technology. And Mr Porter would be preoccupied with other things, like the defamation action against the ABC, the likelihood that he will lose his seat of Pierce in light, in light of the latest news poll, what he will do after he quits politics, and the decision as to when he will quit. And Sanjeev Gupta's Wyala Steelworks could be sold off or forced to seek a government bailout to avoid closure if a new court action instigated by Switzerland's Credit Suisse to wind up the 56-year-old South Australian manufacturing plant is successful. Citibank's London branch filed an application on Tuesday for winding up in insolvency in the New South Wales Supreme Court against GFG Alliance's One Steel Manufacturing, which operates Wyala Steelworks, and GFG's Tarmoil Coal. Citibank acts as trustee for some of GFG invoices that were packaged into bonds by the collapsed firm Greensill Capital and held in four supply chain funds managed by Credit Suisse, which is trying to recover billions of dollars for more than 1,000 investors who sent money into them. The aggressive move by Credit Suisse, which has taken similar legal action against GFG's Liberty Commodities business in Britain, underlines the increasingly precarious financial footing of Mr Gupta's GFG as it desperately races to refinance about $6 billion worth of funding that had previously been sourced from Greensill. GFG entities are coming under legal attack around the world as Credit Suisse launches wind-up motions in several countries to try to seize assets and resurrect its reputation following its association with two collapsed entities, Greensill and the US hedge fund Archegos, which had $13 billion of assets under management. And consumers have been warned to brace for higher prices on products ranging from imported food to clothing, footwear, furniture, hardware and toys, as a surging in shipping costs adds to pressure on commodity prices. 
Retailers said shipping costs had tripled in 12 to 15 months, while prices for commodities and materials, ranging from palm oil and PVC to timber and steel and aluminium, had soared due to strong global demand, container shortages and log jams in ports. And technology staff at Nine Entertainment worked through the Easter weekend to bring the company back online after a serious cyber attack, but it will still be weeks before computer systems are fully restored, the spokesman said. A week after Nine was hit by what its Chief Information and Technology Officer Damon Cronin called a significant, sophisticated and complex cyber attack, IT staff spent the long weekend going through the broadcaster's systems one by one and checking for back doors before bringing them back online, the spokesman said. The attack on Nine's North Sydney headquarters in the early hours of March 28th initially crippled some IT systems and led to some television programs not airing that morning. And Swiss, the second biggest player in the Australian vitamins market, expects its sales to begin stabilising in Caledon 2021, as it shifted its focus to reinvigorating its local e-commerce sales after a horror 2020, and it thinks vaccinations in pharmacies will be a plus. Revenue from the Swiss-Australian business slumped 32% to $260 million in Caledon 2020, after the disappearance of corporate Dejo traders who had previously been an engine room as they bought up huge volumes of products and shipped them to China for sale on e-commerce sites. Not even the star power of a cavalcade of celebrity actors Swiss uses to promote its products, including Nicole Kidman, Chris Hemsworth, Elsa Pataki, have been able to reverse the slide. Swiss is owned by Hong Kong-listed Health and Happiness, which acquired the business in 2015 and 16, in two parts for a monster price of $1.7 billion, when Australian vitamin demand in China was growing at its fastest rate. Health and Happiness Global Chief Executive Leticia Garnier expects there to be some levelling out in 2021 in Australia and New Zealand, after what she described as a weak performance in the retail channel in that market for the 12 months ended December 2020. The company believes many people who simply have not been visiting pharmacies will make a return in the flesh for a vaccination, and the extra foot traffic is likely to be a plus on a range of levels. And prices for Australian carbon credits have surged more than 10% since January and may more than double by the end of the decade as companies leave the federal government in their wake and implement net zero emissions targets. An expected ramp-up of Canberra's ambitions towards net zero, potentially as early as this month, at US President Joe Biden's leaders' summit on climate, would only add extra momentum, according to Hugh Grossman, Executive Director at Carbon Consultancy Repitex. Analysis, released by Repitex on Wednesday, finds prices reached $18.40 per tonne of CO2 at the end of March, up 11% since January the 1st, including a jump in February. Prices could increase to between $20 and $45 a tonne by 2030, it said. And Australia's iconic Sydney Opera House is poised to enter the Netflix era with a new streaming service launching on Tuesday that will feature a library of content including archive performances and live streamed shows. The service, to be called simply Stream, has been built by New York headquarters video software company Vimeo under the direction of the Opera House's head of digital programming, Stuart Buchanan. To promote the Opera House's new service, four free live streams will be available on April the 9th, 10th and 11th of a culturally diverse music collective, Barra Bawari, that's tomorrow in the Gadigal language. Australian singer-songwriter Jack River and classical music whiz kids behind the Sydney Symphony Orchestra. Pay-per-view will range from $10 to $35. Stream will also kick off with a library of over 30 hours of programming across more than 45 films and other events. Digital attendees will be able to select from a mixture of free and pay-per-view options that will correspond with the Opera House's in-house and new online-only programming. Stream will also collaborate with international art centres around the world to stream overseas shows for Australian audiences. 
And the chief executive of the $140 billion AWARE Superfund, Diane Stewart, has called on the federal government to deliver a pink budget in May, which will deliver more economic benefits for women, including a better deal on superannuation and more affordable childcare. She said last year's budget was seen as delivering benefits for men, including more funds for apprenticeships in the construction industry. The May budget should deliver more economic benefits for women, she said, including a better deal on super and more financial assistance for childcare, as well as more funding for affordable housing. Ms Stewart welcomed last week's appointment of Superannuation and Financial Services Minister Jane Hume as the Minister in Charge of Improving Women's Economic Security. Some 70% of AWARE Super's 1.1 million members are women, including nurses, medical workers, police, social workers and other public servants. And investors who lost millions of dollars in an unlicensed investment scheme run by accused fraudster Melissa Caddick may have substantial claims against accountants who audited their self-managed superannuation funds, according to professional liquidators. Future public examinations of those accountants have been foreshadowed by the court, appointed provisional liquidators Bruce Gleeson and Daniel Soir. However, the move to hold public examinations will be delayed as the corporate regulator ASIC has been granted an adjournment in a civil case in the federal court against Ms Caddick and her company Malifa. Due to the complexity of the matter, the two-day hearing, which was due to commence on April the 7th, has been pushed back until June. Investors were hoping that the hearing would clear the way for Ms Caddick's assets to be sold to recoup some of the $23 million stolen by Ms Caddick. In a lengthy report completed in February and provided to the more than 60 victims of Ms Caddick, Mr Gleeson and Mr Swar identified $29.46 million from investors which moved through Ms Caddick's account. A further $688,198 is likely to be investors' funds, but further investigations are continuing. More than $7.3 million was repaid to her clients, but the bulk of the money was squandered on Ms Caddick's profligate lifestyle. According to the report to investors before she went missing in November 2020, that year, Ms. Caddick raked in what $5.4 million from clients who thought they were investing in shares. In 2019, she took $4.13 million, but her most successful year was 2015, when she reeled in $6.279 million. Ms. Caddick, 49, is presumed dead after human remains which were identified as belonging to the missing Dover Heights woman was found on a remote beach on the south coast of New South Wales in late February. A death certificate is unlikely to be issued until the matter comes before the New South Wales coroner later this year. The New South Wales Police have indicated their brief of evidence for the coroner is likely to be finished in mid-June. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Dale Garvey, Managing Director of Firm Decisions, the largest independent global marketing contract compliance specialist, providing advertisers with transparency into their marketing and media agencies, incorporating creative media, digital events, point of view or direct marketing BTL agencies. And I'll be talking to AMP Chief Economist Shane Oliver, about how the market has performed in the first quarter. In the meantime, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 